You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, I do want to say good morning. My name is Eric Barton and I get to pastor the downtown campus of Bethel and I am delighted that you are here I really am delighted that you're here because I absolutely believe this, that God has divinely directed your steps to be here, that it is no accident that you are here, that as we, here in a moment, open up God's word, that God will literally speak to us in the present tense. By what he has spoken, he speaks to us as we go to his word. His word is living and it is active. And when his people come together, his spirit is present. So we open his word, God communicates. And so that's what we're here to do this morning is to hear all that. So I just, I want to set your expectations accordingly. That, that means that God has a word for you this morning. And I don't know exactly how it's going to go. I don't know exactly what God is wanting to communicate to every individual here, but I can tell you from the passage that uh, it's a very profound and I think practical and pertinent truth. We've been studying this whole semester through the parables of Jesus. We, we started this series called Jesus Stories, where Jesus tells a bunch of stories to people for some to make it more plain, more clear, more impactful, but for others... It is to obscure the truth a little bit so that they will not understand what he is talking about. And so I pray this morning for clarity, that you will understand precisely what Jesus is saying. It is what he wants. So this morning, we've already heard our passage preached, and it reminds me of that late great theologian, oh, what was his name? That's right, uh, Tom Petty, who said, the waiting is the hardest part. This is a parable, a story from Jesus about waiting. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate to wait. I'm absolutely awful at waiting. I would rather eat a light bulb than wait on anything. My poor, poor family gets to practice their collective eye roll every time we go out to eat. If I pull up to a restaurant and I see anybody standing outside, that's it. I bet there's a wait. We're not sticking around. Let's go. They go, wait a minute, Dad. No, 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 no. He, they're, just, they're just leaving the restaurant. I'm like, no, no, I'm not risking it. Mm-mm. We're not going to wait. No way. Why in a town where there are literally three restaurants for every human being would I wait around 20 minutes to eat the same nachos I had yesterday? Not going to do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to someplace else, order the nachos, and I'm not waiting. I hate to wait. It's the worst thing ever. I feel so... Out of control. Maybe you wait differently as well in different circumstances. Maybe when you're in line at the Department of Motor Vehicles, that great, that great institution of human observation, you're at the Department of Motor Vehicles, and it just seems like time is barely moving. Why won't they just hit the little stamp thing a little bit faster? But no. Or when you're waiting at Walmart, and there you are. You're the 17th person in line. It's an enormous door. There's one checker, and you get to stand there and just observe all the different Pez dispensers that they have right there while you wait like this. And you check your phone, and still no one has texted you. I hate to wait, okay? And I realize that uh, I have begun to wait differently as I have gotten older. When I was a kid... I had no concept of delayed gratification. 
And to be clear, I'm not exactly an expert in delayed gratification now, but I remember the kids saying, I want my food now. I want my food now. And I couldn't understand why mom and dad wouldn't give me the food right now. We would take a, a road trip, and I'd be the guy in the back of the seat kicking my dad's chair going, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And he would blow a rotator cuff trying to get to me to make me stop. Why? Because I was so exhilarated to get to the place we were going. And I realized that I have now become that guy. I have turned into my dad. And so now when my family is away, when they're traveling someplace, I find myself, I know better, I can't help it though, I find myself walking back and forth in front of the window like this, like maybe they're going to come into the driveway soon. And I can even creepily track them from my phone, and I do, but I can't help it. I have to wait. Like, are they back? What's going on? Why aren't they here yet? Did they get a flat tire? Are they buying me nachos? What's happening? Why aren't they here yet? And I just, I can't, I, I, it's hard to wait. And then there are times when it just seems like the clock is going so fast it's out of control. Inevitably, anytime I have a calendar planning meeting scheduled or a counseling session, something like that, that seems to be the moments when God gives me a sermon. And so I'll have about five minutes before the appointment is supposed to start. I live 20 minutes away, and yet right then is when all the inspiration of the sermon comes, and i got to write it down, just a few minutes more, just a few minutes more, and the clock is just spinning so fast. Maybe you've experienced that even with, I don't know, a loved one. I remember a few years ago when my dad was beginning to fail in health and just sitting by his bed watching him slowly fade, and yet, man, the, the moments just seemed to fly. Like, no, 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 not yet. Not yet. Give me some more time. I need more time. And I realized that I was really bad at waiting then as well. So I, I guess the question for all of us is how do you wait? This morning, the parable that we've already heard read is, I think, Jesus' words to his disciples to help us understand how we are to wait. And so our big idea for the morning for this parable is as follows. To wait well is to watch, wonder, and work. To wait well, we have to watch, wonder, and work. Now, I'm going to unpack all of that as we go to this passage, but here's what we kind of need to understand. This parable comes in a section of Matthew's gospel called the Olivet Discourse. This is because he's standing on the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem, and he's telling his disciples a bunch of information. Standing on the Mount of Olives, telling them a whole lot of detail. It is the fifth sermon in the Gospel of Matthew. Fifth different speech or talk or sermon that he's going to give. This is the fifth and final one, and it's packed with information. Now, it's really instructive. These two chapters, chapter 24 and 25, have to be taken together. Because if you try to just skip and dip one little vignette out of chapters 24 and 25, you'll make the text do all sorts of things that it's not intended to do. You have to take all of this together. So just very, very briefly, I've got to construct a little bit of a framework to give us a little bit of a running start into the parable we've already heard read. Chapters 24 and 25 go together. The first half of chapter 24 is Jesus explaining what's going to happen when he comes back. Jesus has come, first advent. The Son of God has become the Son of Man. Jesus, the Messiah, has come. But he's telling us that he's going to go away and he will come again. It's not what the Jewish people were expecting. They thought everything was going to happen all at once. It was a surprise that these two incidents, the suffering servant, was going to be a dividing, a dividing time before he comes back as the conquering king. So he tells us all those things are going to happen in Matthew 24, 1 to 35. 
But the other three-fourths of the Olivet Discourse are telling us how we are to wait for it. So, so hear this. This is really instructive. We get a quarter of the Olivet Discourse telling us what's going to happen, but three-fourths of it is telling us how we are to wait for it. So apparently Jesus is not as interested in telling us the when, which is what we really want to know because we hate to wait, but instead he's vastly more interested in a people of faith who wait well. Jesus is vastly concerned with a people all over the globe who are characterized by waiting well. And so he gives us five parables strung together to explain to us how we are to wait well as we eagerly anticipate and expect his second coming. So he's going to string together all these parables. I'm not going to unpack all of them, but I want to sort of just give you the big ideas of these parables so that you can kind of know where we're coming into. The first parable he's going to tell is of two men working in a field, two women grinding flour together. There are these two pairs of people, and they're just busily working. This is Matthew 24, 36 to 44. A pair of guys working, a pair of ladies working. And suddenly, boom, one of the guys is gone. Suddenly, boom, one of the ladies is gone. Apparently taken in judgment. Suddenly and without warning. It is a surprise. And the big idea of Jesus is telling that parable is simply this. Wait for Jesus' return as though you don't want to be surprised by it. Wait for it so that you don't get surprised by it. Then he tells another parable about a thief who breaks into a home and steals some stuff. And he says, if you knew the thief was coming, you would have been ready. So again, the big idea is the same. Wait for Jesus' return as though you don't want to be surprised by it. Then in chapter 24, verses 45 to 51, we get this parable of the unjust servant. And we're told the story of a servant who begins to abuse, exploit, and manipulate and beat his fellow servants. And Jesus says that servant will have to give a very strong account he will get what's coming to him. And so the big idea of that story is, wait for Jesus' return as though you must give an account for your service, either faithful or unfaithful. Wait for his return as if you're going to have to explain yourself when he comes, because we will. And then Jesus begins chapter 25, and he tells a familiar parable. We call it the parable of the ten maidens or the ten virgins. And this one I have to do a little bit of contextual and cultural unpacking. Because weddings work differently in our day and age than it did in antiquity. 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East, the groom was the star of the show. The entire wedding, everything about it was about the groom. Totally upside down, backwards, inside out, and different from it is the way it is today. Today you'll hear a report about a wedding, and it'll explain everything about the bride, all the people who worked on her hair, the different putty knives that were used on her face, the place she bought her gown, all the different things, her whole childhood, how many little ponies she had when she was a little girl, her dreams of being a princess, all of those things. And somewhere at the very, very bottom, it'll say the groom was also present. <laughs> and that's it. But that's totally upside down from how it was in antiquity. In antiquity, the groom was the star. He was probably an older person than the bride because he had to have the capacity to produce income to build a home ready for this bride. And when he's finished building his home, preparing a room for his bride, he goes to get her. And the whole village, the whole community, the whole town is aware of what's happening. He goes to her home. She lives with her parents. She's younger. And they party like it's their job. And this party might last a few hours. It might last days, depending on the resources of the father of the bride. And there's no setting your clock by it. They just party till they're done. But all of the town knows they have to be ready. They have to be 
absolutely ready for when the groom brings the bride back to his home, that's when the party's going to start. That's the official ceremony. And they have to come because if they come and they're late, the groom will have already shut the door and they can't come in. They'll be viewed as party crashers. They can't come in. And the story goes that five of them are ready. Five of them are not ready. They are foolish. And so the big idea of that parable is wait for Jesus's return as though it may be long delayed. Wait for Jesus's return as though it might be long delayed. In other words, wait wisely. Stay ready so that you don't have to get ready. And then that brings us to the parable we've already heard read. And then in verses 31 to the end, we hear Jesus explaining what's going to happen at final judgment. It's scary. It's frightening. We're not going to get into that right now. But that's the whole bit of the Olivet Discourse. A quarter of it telling us what? Three-fourths of us, three-fourths of it telling us how we are to wait as we anticipate Jesus' second coming. To wait well is to watch, wonder, and work. Or I'll put it another way. We are to wait for Jesus' return as though we are to increase the master's assets. So let me just unpack this very quickly and briefly if I can. Back to Matthew 25 and in verse 14. One of the most important interpretive keys for the whole parable is in verse 14. If you don't understand this, the whole parable breaks down and does not hold water. In verse 14 it says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his slaves, slaves. The word is not servant. The word is slave, doulos. It's unambiguous. It's crystal clear in the original. It is a slave, someone who is property, someone who is owned by another. It is not servant. Translators, understandably, don't really love the term slave because it's so unpalatable. But this is not the same kind of slavery that we experienced in our nation 150 years ago. It's a different kind of slavery entirely. It is culturally an institution that is normative. Everybody understands. This is not Jesus condoning slavery by any stretch of the imagination. He's just using it as an illustration because everybody understands it. But the people that are described in this parable are slaves. If they are servants, meaning employees, it makes no sense. The parable falls apart. They are slaves. Now, let me go on and say this. Our Bible is absolutely emphatic and clear at saying that everybody that has ever lived ever is a slave. Everybody, ever. You are either a slave to your own sin and ultimately death, or you are a slave to Christ. There are no other options. You are a slave to sin and death. means your, na your nature is bound to do that which is opposite what God wants, or you are Christ's slave, and therein you shall have true freedom, liberty, righteousness, joy, peace, and delight. But everybody's a slave, one way or the other. The question is, who is your master? So in verse 14, we learn that there are some slaves. And we are told that, uh, as the passage continues, that he has some property, some assets, some belongings, and he's going to entrust it to them because he's going away for a long time. We don't know how long it's going to be. Verse 15, to one he gave five talents. Now clearly talents here, we know this, does not mean a skill or an ability. It's not to one he gave the ability to play the banjo, to one he gave the ability to play tennis. No, 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 no. Talent, it's a, it's a monetary measure. We don't know exactly how much this is, but the Greek word is talenton. So we didn't know how else to translate this, and so it's simply translated a talent. It's a talenton. Now, we know from all sorts of extra-biblical records that 
a talent of silver is about 80 pounds. But a talent of gold is about 160 pounds of gold. That's a lot of money, y'all. 160 pounds of gold. They try to estimate it somewhere. It's about 30 years' salary. So I don't know what you do. I don't know how much you make. Don't care. But 30 years' salary, that's a chunk of change. This guy gets five of them. So we're talking about millions and millions of dollars is what this guy's been entrusted with. He's a slave. Have I mentioned that? He's been given millions and millions of dollars. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. Now this is important. To each, according to his ability. You see, the master knows his slaves. He knows what each slave is capable of, and he apportions and distributes accordingly. We might hear that and go, well, that's not exactly fair. But apparently the master knows the slaves even better than they know themselves. And in his wisdom, he allots his assets, which is his right and prerogative to do, according to what he knows they can do. And that's going to be important because apparently the master did know what he was doing. We'll see in a moment. So verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. Now, we're not given a whole lot of information here, but this guy immediately, you can sort of see, like a son who hears from his father, here's a project, go and do it. And the son says, I'm going to make you proud, Dad. And he runs off, and we're not told what he does, but here's what we know. There's no such thing as the stock market. There is no NASDAQ. There is no New York Stock Exchange. That doesn't exist for a millennia and a half later. When you're given resources like this, you have to go and buy a business and work it yourself. There's no just investing in, in tech stocks. There's no dot-com. There's not even a dot-camel back then. You have to go and build something. So maybe he goes and buys a vineyard, and he plants grapes, and he works the vineyard, and he grows a great crop, and he produces wine, and he sells that. And over time, we don't know how much time. Is it four years, eight years, 20 years? We don't know. He doubles this. For millions and millions of dollars, he doubles it. Maybe he buys an olive grove. And he does all the work of grinding the olives after he harvests them and he produces oil and he sells it for, for lighting, for heating, for food. Maybe he buys a fleet of fishing boats and he produces a, a fishing empire for his master. But all of this is taking his master's assets and improving and increasing his master's assets right away. This is what he does. We sort of get the idea that the second slave does the exact same thing. So also, verse 17... He who had the two talents made two talents more. You almost get the impression that they went out together. Like they did the same thing. They followed each other around and they did a business maybe even together because the language is identical. Verse 18. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. He does nothing with it. It's a complete and total waste. The text wants us to make sure we understand and know that this is his master's money and that he was supposed to accomplish something with it during the master's absence. But this guy makes a choice to do nothing with it. Either because he doesn't really understand who the master is and what he's like, or he doesn't really believe that the master will ever come back, or he is utterly incapable of contemplating and considering consequence something the book of Proverbs calls foolishness. Either way, either he doesn't know the master, or he doesn't believe the master's coming again, or he cannot consider consequence. Either way, he is foolish. 
we might hear this and think, well, you know, hey, at least he didn't, uh, at least he didn't blow it on the boats. He didn't, you know, blow it on easy living. No, 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 no. He has a task assigned to him to increase his master's assets. He is a slave. This is what he's supposed to be doing, and he makes a disobedient choice to not follow his instructions. So then, we get in verse 19, a very instructive piece that connects this to the all the rest of the Olivet Discourse. Verse 19, now after a long time, after a long delay, all of these parables in Matthew 24 and 25, they build on each other. It connects it back to the parable of the ten maidens. The, the delay is long. We don't know how long it will take, but, but he does come back in verse 19. The master of those slaves came and he settled accounts with them, lines them up and says, okay, I'm back. I know I've been gone a long time, but Still, my assets, my belongings, my property, what have you done with it? Verse 20, and he who had received the five talents came forward. You kind of get the idea that he rushes to the front of the line like, oh man, I have been looking forward to this for years. I cannot wait to show him what I've done. Perhaps you've even heard your own children say, dad, are you so proud of me? Are you so pleased with what I've done? Are you so proud of me? This is what this slave is doing. He came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. You can almost hear some pride and some satisfaction in his voice. Like, I, I didn't have it easy. Man, it wasn't easy. I made a lot of mistakes. We had a, we had a fire. We lost some of our trees. We had a, a storm that wrecked some of our boats. But, but you know what? I stayed the course. And I have turned your assets double. It's all yours. It's not mine. I don't get a cut. I don't get gratuity. It's all yours. Here, here, it's yours. Sort of the, the tone that you hear from this guy. Verse 21, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. Whew, still calling him a slave, but he calls him good and faithful. It says, well done. Now, he's totally within his rights as a slave owner, as a master, to say five more, that's it? I've been gone 50 years. I've been gone five minutes. You should have produced even 10 more talents. But he doesn't say that. He says, well done. You have, in a sense, exceeded expectations. You are good. You are faithful. You have been faithful over <laughs> a little. Are you for real, Z's? A little? This is millions and millions of dollars. This is telling us something. This master has countless Amounts of resources, assets, and property. Millions and millions of dollars is its little to this master. He owns a great deal more. But you have been faithful with a little bit. I'm going to make you responsible for a whole lot more. Now, that's instructive. One of the ways the master dignifies the slave is by increasing his role in the realm, his responsibility in his reign, do you see? Not only that, he says... You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master, the delight of your master. This is not how you treat slaves in antiquity. It's not what you say to slaves. And again, this is not a servant or an employee. This is a slave. But he dignifies him, ennobles him, raises him up, gives him familial status. Enter in, experience all that I experience. Outside the world of parable, we understand that the, the joy of Jesus was the glory of his father. So we can begin to understand this slave is invited into experience 
the relationship, the proximity, the nearness, the closeness of the Father and the Son and the Spirit all together. It's not how you treat slaves, unless you're a very surprising master indeed. Well, the story continues. Verse 22, And he who also had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. Almost the exact same response the master gives again in verse 23. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. Again, this is millions of dollars. But I'm going to give you more responsibility. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Look, it was an easy master. Had some setbacks, all sorts of calamities. There was pestilence and plague. We had this one day. It was really foggy. It was weird. But you know what? Here it is. It's all yours. You gave me some and I made it more. Here, it's all yours. Are you, are you so proud of me? Well done. Good and faithful servant. Verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, and I quote, Master. He's probably scared to death, realizing, okay, I didn't really think he was coming back. And all of a sudden, oh my goodness, he's here. Master, I, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. There's no satisfaction at seeing the master. There's only excuse. There's only an attempt at self-justification. There's actually an accusation. There's resentment. Master, this is your fault. You're a hard guy. You're a, you're a ruthless businessman. I, I, I was scared. As if the slave has an option. See, he's not a servant. He's not an employee. An employee can withdraw service. You don't want to go to work tomorrow? Fine, don't. You might get fired, but you won't get killed. A slave who withdraws service can be executed legally by his master. This is an excuse but as man, So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. I did nothing with it. You get back what you put in, and that's all. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Really, that's your, that's your logic? That you should have done something more even then. But you, your logic doesn't hold up. Your attempt at excuse and self-justification falls apart. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Take that one talent and give it to the guy with ten, to which ten talent Timmy says, Woohoo! This has been a great day indeed, right? Now, this is not, as some have attempted to use it, a text that is teaching economic redistribution and social justice. There are texts for that. Fine. This is not that passage. This is talking about, as we have been given virtue and spiritual vitality, what are we doing with that? As we continue to grow and mature, more will be given. And those who refuse to use what we have been given they will continue to diminish and decline and deteriorate in frustration and irritation. That's what we're hearing here. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is the master's prerogative because he owns the slave. All of us are slaves, every single one. Do you have a master? that is ennobling, dignifying, raising you into his realm, or do you have a master that is ultimately going to destroy you anyway? 
We're taught in all of these parables how we are to wait for the second coming of Christ. It's not a matter of if. It is a matter of when and how we wait for that coming. So let's talk about this. What do we learn from this passage? Well, we've already discussed it. It's to wait well is to watch, wonder, and work. Or to put another way, we are to wait as though we are to increase the master's assets. But how exactly do we do that? Let me just break it down. Three little quick points of application. Just three quick words. Number one, watch. Be watchful. Too often we allow our eyes to fall and simply get myopic and tunnel visioned where all we see are the circumstances that are pressing in around us. And we become small picture people, always to our own detriment. We become like Peter, who begins to look at the white caps on the waves rather than looking at the one who can help him to walk on those waves. And he begins to sink. But we are to be watchful. It's been 10, or sorry, it's been 2,000 years since first advent, and I don't know when second advent will be. It's been a long time. And apparently Jesus is not interested in telling us when. He's vastly more interested in preparing and producing a people of faith who look at the world as if his second coming is truth. If we really believed he was coming again, wouldn't we be watching? I don't mean taking some lawn chairs out in your front yard and simply staring at the sky for the rest of your life. I don't mean that. That would kind of be awesome, provided there's nachos, but I'm not advocating that. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we rein in our thoughts and we adjust our thinking to always include the reality that as we live and look in the world around us, he may come back. What am I doing with what he has given? What am I doing? We are to be watchful. Number two, wonder. We are to have wonder. Jesus spends a great deal of time talking about this. One of the ways we are to live our lives is constantly being fixated on his return. It's right there in the passage. He says, enter into your master's delight. Do you have any idea what that will be like? Can you imagine how that will feel? Do you sit around with your family going, dude, this is hard. We're struggling financially. We're struggling relationally. We're struggling with health. But one day... One day the sky's going to crack open. There will be a big white horse and the king of kings will be on it. How will things be different? What will it be like to be in the presence and the joy and the delight of God himself who has experienced perfect pleasure with the Father and the Son and the Spirit for all eternity? We are invited into that. Do you ever wonder? You ever just think, gosh, things are hard now, but one day the government will be on his shoulders and there will be no more CNN to report on his failings. Because there won't be any failings. Do you wonder about these things? You should. In fact, so here's my deal. I challenge you. I challenge you every single day. Set yourself a wonder prompt. Get a dry erase marker. Write it on your bathroom mirror. Get a sticky note. Put it on the steering column of your car. So when that thing blows, boom, it's forever on your mind. Right? Do something. Put it on your windshield. Write yourself a note. Tat it on your wrist. Don't care. Wonder. 20 seconds a day, 100 seconds a day, just whatever you're doing, you're driving, you're working at your desk, you're gardening, you're cooking, you're having a conversation with your spouse, what will it be like when he comes back? Do you anticipate, do you eagerly expect, do you want to see his return? I can't wait. How will it look in this world when the king of kings returns? I can tell you one thing, I gotta find a new job. There will be no more preaching, no need. So I'm hoping there's like a professional nacho tester or something of that nature. But it's going to be different. Do you ever spend time thinking about that? What will this world be like without the presence of sin? 
Do you talk about that with your family? Do you contemplate that? I challenge you to set prompts. Put a reminder on your phone every day at 9.37 a.m. Wonder what would it be like if it just happened. Thirdly, work. We are to be productive with what we have. We are to be busily improving and increasing the master's assets. Does he need our help? Oh, my, no. No, 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 no. But he invites us into the joy and the privilege of experiencing productivity for his sake. Can I really increase his resources? No. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the stars of a trillion galaxies. But I get to be busily mindful and try to be productive. See, this helps us to understand Jesus says one of the rewards of how we wait in this age prepares us for our role in the next. How we wait now matters for how we live later. Immensely. I will give you increased responsibility. I don't know what you're going to be doing. I've already put in for this, and I hope Jesus got my letter. I'm going to be like the governor of Banff, Canada. You're welcome to come by. That's what I'm going to be doing. All right? So I hope it works out that you can come see me for a couple hundred years. But that's what I'm asking for. There will be increased responsibility in the physical world. I think so too often we Christians have a misguided misunderstanding of what heaven is, that we just drift off to some disembodied ether-like experience wearing white nightgowns, playing harps, living on clouds. That's Tom and Jerry cartoons. That's not from the Bible. That's not real. We live on the earth for all eternity. We get to work to be productive, and it is a joy in the absence of sin. And we get to practice that now. How we wait now determines our role and responsibility later. The age between his first and second arrival determines much of how our age in that time will be. Does that mean you simply have to just try harder? No, no. But it does mean that we rein in our attitude and our awareness. And we are called to recognize that everything we have is actually the master's. And we are working to increase his assets, not our own. So to wait well is to watch, to wonder, and to work. But this is where I want to pause for a moment and be absolutely cautious and crystal clear as I can possibly be. Our tendency may be to hear this passage, or perhaps we've heard it preached before, and we say, gosh, I guess I get it. Jesus saved me, and so now I have to try harder to be better, to work harder, to, to, to pay him back. Nope. Nope. That's a total misunderstanding. That would be a total gross misapplication that will only produce frustration and self-defeat and self-loathing because you and I cannot actually increase his holdings. But instead, the Apostle Paul says that we are clay pots filled with the very glory of God himself. We hold this treasure. It is the presence, the indwelling of God himself. So it's not as though Jesus is going to return and say, hey, what did you do with your 401k? That'll be a part of it. But much, much bigger than that, Jesus will say, what have you done with the gospel? What have you done with the gospel? Do you, do you imagine that the gospel is merely a get-out-of-hell-free card? That's a misunderstanding. No, 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 no. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem man to himself and to one another. You are a freedman. What have you done with that? How have you brought the gospel to bear in your interactions with your wife, with your husband? How have you brought the gospel to bear with your neighbor? How have you brought the gospel to bear as you parent your kids, as you raise your aging parents? How have you brought the gospel to bear in your church, in your community, in your workplace? What have you done with the gospel? We will give an account, and if our answer is only, well, look, you're, you're like a big, bright, shiny 
strong God. I knew that you're going to come back, and I didn't want to mess it up. So I've been to nothing, anything. I just don't want to go to hell. You've totally misunderstood the glory of the gospel. What have you done with the gospel? See, here's the reality. This is all in Matthew 25. But right after Matthew 25 is Matthew 26, where we begin the three-chapter narrative of the passion of Jesus, where the master doesn't hand out gold. He, he pays himself the ultimate price. He lives a perfect, sinless life and then offers that to us, righteousness from his life exchanged for our sin. He takes all of it. So if you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus, then none of what I've just said makes any sense whatsoever. But I just want you to know that we absolutely believe with all of our marrow that the Bible is God's word. And it is telling us that you are a slave to your own sin. You have a nature that is broken, corrupted, and fallen. And all it can do is displease God. Even if you're moral, the best you can do is displease God. You are a slave to your own sin and ultimately death. But the free gift of salvation is the gospel, where you can be a slave to Christ and be elevated in dignity and elevated in nobility for nothing. It's your only hope. So we invite you to believe. If you're here this morning and you do know this Jesus, but you have sort of gotten tired of waiting, and for you, second advent, the second coming of Christ, is sort of like somewhere between the Easter Bunny and leprechauns. Like, yeah, I guess so, but you know what? It's been 2,000 years. Who knows? Maybe we were wrong about that deal. Let me remind you, he is coming again, and the text says, soon. It means quickly, with no warning. May we all wait well. May we watch, may we wonder, and may we work. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you this morning for who you are, for what you have done. Father, we thank you for this word, this warning that reminds us how we are to wait. I thank you for this passage, Father. It is convicting to me that while I am on idle, I have an opportunity to think rightly about you. And so, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, would you, by your Spirit, confirm and reveal to them that they are a slave to sin, but you have come in the person of Christ to set them free? Would you move irresistibly by your Spirit to lead them into a saving knowledge of your Son? They would step out of darkness and into light, out of death into life, and that they would be a slave to your Son, Jesus. We know that that is life. For the rest of us, Father, would you, by your Spirit, remind us and convict us through this text among our brothers and sisters in Christ to wait well, to stay ready so that we don't have to get ready. May it be exactly as I have prayed or even better. God, we love you because you loved us first. We pray all these things in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being with us this morning. I'm delighted that you are here. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction and we will be dismissed. If you haven't ever been to Discover Bethel, we encourage you to be a part of that. You can sign up for that out in the foyer. Peter, writing to the churches of what is now modern Turkey, says, May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. May you receive it. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.